Welcome to the Ogletree Deacons podcast, a brief discussion of compelling legal issues and practical insights. Please note that the information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be, nor should it be construed as legal advice. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or through your favorite podcast service. Please consider rating and reviewing so that we may continue to provide the content that covers your needs. Please enjoy the program. Good morning. This is Philip Russell. Joined by Karen Tynan. We are recording this podcast today from the 2022 edition of Workplace Strategies. Workplace Strategies is our national client conference that Ogletree Deacons puts on every year. This is a premier conference for labor and employment law topics put on by the premier labor and employment law firm that you and I have the honor of being shareholders Absolutely. Here in Phoenix at the beautiful Biltmore. Oh, my goodness. Speaking of the Biltmore in Phoenix, that introduces the subject. The heat is on. (laughs) Yes, it is. So today we're going to talk about OSHA's new approach to heat illness and what that might mean. And I'm joined today by Karen because Karen is in our Sacramento office uh, and practices Cal OSHA. She does Fed OSHA too. She is the West Coast leader of our workplace safety and health practice group on the West Coast, which is California. What other states? Oregon, Washington. We loop in Nevada, although it doesn't have a coastline, but we include it in our, in our team with Noel Hernandez um, out there in Vegas. Fantastic. So she's going to bring that West Coast, specifically California perspective to this topic today because... There is somebody else from California involved in this whole issue with OSHA right now. Who's that? That's Doug Parker. And I don't think you can understand the push on heat illness at the federal level unless you understand that Doug Parker came from California, Philip. And and you saw him at the ABA conference, right? Yeah, he came down. Uh, we were in Sarasota, the other West Coast, by the way, West Coast of Florida. <laughs> So Doug Parker comes down and, uh, and you know, he was there along with uh, a lot of the other leaders from the agency, and they were very clear about what their top priority is, and that is heat. Absolutely. It was a focus in California with him. Um, he is really a true believer in uh, the need for heat illness regulations and enforcement. He has some other, I would call them um, pet peeves or focus such as workplace violence, uh, you know, things like that. But his, his first real push at the federal level is heat illness. California was his playground for many years and he was an advocate of enforcement of the heat illness regulation in California that is carried over to the feds. So that's the linchpin for clients to understand this push. So, and that's what we're gonna talk about today is exactly there really are two things are going on. There is the rulemaking side of things and then there's the enforcement side. So let's go to the rulemaking first. So what's interesting is uh, Mr. Parker and a lot of other folks were somewhat coy about what was going on, but <laughs> let's go back and take it to October of 2021. Now, October is the time of year when things begin to cool off a little bit, except in Florida, which, right? You know, cooling off is relative. So uh, that's the time in which they issued an advance notice of proposed rulemaking. Now, when I say they, I mean Fed OSHA, but it wasn't a rule, but it was essentially a hey, we are going to make a rule. Yes. And we would like you employers to answer these 114 questions. What was that all about? What's the purpose of that? The the purpose of that is information gathering and. Many advocacy groups, trade organizations have been involved in that process. 
And it really is the first step for the agency to evaluate uh, kind of where the regulation should be headed, some of the nuances, the points, and it also really put employers on notice. This is for reals. It is coming. <laughs> uh, for reals? That's for a California reals. term? All right. <laughs> So, uh, by the way, your accent doesn't sound very Californian. Where are you from, Karen? I'm originally from Georgia, mm-hmm. but I went to college in New York and then lived in California. So, um, Philip, sometimes when I'm around my sisters a bit, or as my husband says, when I've had a couple glasses of wine, I start <laughs> talking like a Southern gal again. So, um, yes, you have detected that. But, you know, out there on the West Coast, you know, uh, Kevin Bland and I, we, we cover... California, we split it at Bakersfield, and he takes Bakersfield to the Mexico border, and I have Bakersfield to the Oregon border. Um, so that that's how we parse up the West Coast, just for for site visits. But but we we cover it out there, and and I, I want to bring this point around, Philip, that the regulation is also driven by these massive failures in general duty clause cases that that Fed OSHA. Uh, really sought uh, to prosecute. And and you play in the Fed OSHA sandbox a lot more than I do. And these general duty clauses, um, they, they just weren't successful on heat illness cases. No, and I think that's the reason why you see uh, Fed OSHA wanting to have its own standard, like California has its own standard, because California doesn't have to use your version of the general duty clause, which Correct. I understand is different. But Fed OSHA does, because there is no standard. And there's two ways that OSHA can cite an employer, which is uh, either a violation of a specific standard, like fall protection, trenching, what have you, or they use the general duty clause. And very simply, it just says this, that employers are required to, uh, to, uh, to have a workplace free from recognized hazards for which there are some feasible means of abatement. It's a catch-all, right? I mean, Absolutely. That's where they go when they don't have a rule. And with the average rulemaking time, I think I've heard is eight or nine years. It, it takes a while to make a rule. Absolutely. And so sometimes OSHA will say, uh, we're not going to wait on the rulemaking process. We are going to use this general duty clause to write a citation. So what are some examples other than heat that we've seen OSHA use the general duty clause? Well, for? the most recent one that comes to mind is COVID. No, I don't say COVID. We're going to try to do a podcast without even saying COVID. Okay. What about, um, this is an example we talked about this morning, uh, when a worker doesn't fasten their seatbelt in a mm-hmm. work truck at a site, and then there's an accident, they weren't wearing their seatbelt, they're maybe severely injured, well, there's no Fed OSHA regulation that says you have to wear your seatbelt in a work truck, right? That's right. So that would be an example of a general duty clause citation should uh, Fed OSHA decide to cite for that. Well, all right. So let's think about that then. So going back to the general duty clause, the key term there is recognized hazard. So now think about heat. Isn't that a bit of a challenge? How do you know when heat is a recognized hazard? Now, I've heard some folks from OSHA get up on stage and give that talk, and they say heat is a recognized hazard. Well, I will tell you, in my state, Florida, the other West Coast, because I live on the West Coast of Florida, is, uh, you know, heat heat is different things to different people. It depends on lots of different variables, uh, and it also depends on individual physiologies and medical conditions, medical histories. We've both litigated these cases. Right. It's not an easy issue to just generally say heat is a recognized hazard. 
Right, and, and if you think about Florida, which is a great example, it's hot there almost year-round, hot and humid. You have landscapers out. Uh, you have people that work outdoors there in construction. And I would argue that all the workers are acclimatized. Even, even on a Monday, they have been out in the heat all weekend. And so, you know, for me, looking at a state like Florida, looking in the southeast, uh, I, I think it, it creates some difficulties for Fed OSHA. And it's very, I would say, nuanced to consider whether is, is 80 degrees a hazard is 90 is 81 right if you if you start talking about the temperatures you also have to consider the work that's being done right uh maybe even the humidity and so it's not an a plus b equals c type of hazard i think it's more difficult for employers to address yeah it, it does become very challenging and as you said these these triggers we're looking at here and mm-hmm. we'll get to the national emphasis program next but let's let's sort of wrap up the rulemaking. Should Fed OSHA watchers expect that Doug Parker, because he's from California, will just take the Cal OSHA heat plan and plug and chug into the federal standards? Well, there are a few parts of the California plan, um, especially because acclimatization is a little more loose under the Cal OSHA standard. Um, I think employers should look at the Cal OSHA standard with the training, the water, the shade, the acclimatization, and figure that something along those lines, I will pontificate and guess that uh, the Fed standard will be 85 to 90% the Cal OSHA standard and a few things from Washington or Oregon thrown in. How about that? All right, all right. that sounds delightful. <laughs> uh, so acclimatization, let's talk about that term. What is that? So. Acclimatization is when your workers become used to the heat. And so when workers are new on the job uh, and haven't worked out in the heat, uh, it can be a difficult transition uh, for their bodies. And so, for example, in California, you likely are expected to acclimatize workers, meaning you may have workers work only for limited hours on their first day second day build a little more, third day build a little more. Um, and, and so it's meant to allow a person's body to get used to the heat. But, but think about this, Philip. Uh, talking about acclimatization, you know, the, let's say the example, the 4th of July is on a Friday and everybody has three days off and they last worked on Thursday and they've been off work for three days. On Monday morning, do you need to acclimatize people again because they've been out of the heat? allegedly at work for three days. Hmm. So if I think about it in those terms, that's, mm-hmm. that's hard for me to imagine how an employer would be able to get back up to full speed on Monday right. after a three-day weekend. But I also think about in terms of recruiting. So a lot of folks in the construction industry might come from construction, but I've also seen a lot of folks in the landscaping industry that come in to work as landscapers that come from fast food restaurants or in you know, right. indoor retail or warehousing where there's more climate control. Um, that's a longer period of acclimatization, isn't it? Absolutely. And so what Fed OSHA, I think, will expect to see among these employers is, okay, on the first day, how, how long are you allowing employees to work in the heat? Is it two hours? Is it three hours? 
Um, how are you building their kind of tolerance for the heat up in the first few days? But Philip, the problem is it, when someone turns to, as we would say on the ships, do they really want to work just two hours their first day and go home? Or do they, do they want to work eight hours? They want to start getting a paycheck. Right. And so you're going to tell a worker, oh, wait, 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 wait. The first day you can only work two hours out in the heat. I, I think that's difficult. Yeah, I do too. And I think that's going to be a real challenge, especially because I think now you're going to get into an area of, of some medical inquiries too. Because, yes. you know, we, we've always, and now, now we're getting to some more intermediate level stuff here, because this is the kind of thing that you begin to look at OSHA, not in isolation, but you have to look at what the agency is wanting to do with regard to other laws, like the Americans with Disabilities Act. And you have to look at things like post-offer medical questionnaires to determine whether or not employees have particular medical conditions or prescriptions that might make them more susceptible to working in the heat. And that's Absolutely. not exactly, and that's not something I think many employers may see coming from this proposed rule. And we'll segue now to that national emphasis program. But I think right. that when it comes to acclimatization, I just don't think you can have a fully effective acclimatization problem unless you're really looking seriously at a post-offer medical questionnaire that's upgraded to address heat stress. It, it is very difficult, and I think that employers are struggling. I think trade groups are even trying in trying to help employers are struggling with with how to address that in acclimatization, which obviously also touches on, you know, how do you advise employees? Hey, if you're diabetic, you may have some issues around heat stress. Well, are you calling out people? Are you just giving them information? Are they going to come back to you? for an accommodation, it is very nuanced and it is one of the few areas of workplace safety where an employee's own medical condition, whether it's diabetes, obesity, um, some, some el something else underlying that they bring to work and, and now you're developing safety processes to manage that. Yeah, very interesting, right? Because when it comes to something like fall protection, individuals, medical history, doesn't matter. Right. But with regard to heat, it's critical. So watch for that, folks. Let's talk about this national emphasis program. So this is uh, OSHA's enforcement side of things. They are essentially it's saying... It's the hammer. It's the hammer. They're essentially <laughs> saying, well, we're going to work on a rule, but while we're working on a rule, we're also going to go out into the field and we're going to do inspections. We're going to do programmed inspections and unprogrammed inspections. Yes. Programmed inspections, those are the ones with the targeted industries in Exhibit A to the uh, to the NEP, and I and I don't have it in front of me, Philip. But construction, right? Construction, uh, um, outdoor agriculture. If you're outdoors, don't you think you're kind of on notice? You, yeah, you've got landscapers, and then you've got construction. Of, and by the way, they drill it down by the NAICS code, mm -hmm. so you can look at specific industries. I do a lot of work with road and bridge builders. It's, it's right there, and right. It, Surprisingly, they name a few others I found to be curious, like auto dealers. I'm not quite sure how they met the cut, but all right. Uh, but yeah, and it's a combination of indoor and outdoor uh, on those programmed inspections. And those will be right. triggered by heat warnings and heat advisories from the National Weather Service. Okay, fine. I think I got that. And I think that there are some things employers can do to anticipate uh, whether or not they get, uh, whether or not they're in the, in the targets. But I want to talk about the unprogrammed inspections, because this is what really fascinates me. Unprogrammed inspections, that's the side where OSHA says, you know what, we're not here because 
of the National Emphasis Programs targeting this industry. We're here because there was a fall or a hospitalization, even a fatality or an employee complaint. And we might be here to look at whether or not you are uh, following some other standard. But what we're going to do while we're here, thank you for the convenience, is we're yes. going to do a heat inspection. While we're here, right. we're going to do this other thing. Right. And we're going to ask you for your training. We're going to ask you, uh, maybe we'll even interview people about heat illness. And we will check out your program. And we're going to peel back and take a look at what you, Mr. Employer or Mrs. Employer, are doing uh, around heat illness, and uh, I think that that can be even more intimidating, frankly, because someone's coming onto your workplace, maybe for a fingertip amputation out on a machine in building B, and now you're starting to talk about heat illness for the whole company? Yeah, and, and that's what I think folks need to really understand, is that you cannot look at just the programmed inspection side of this NEP. You really, all employers, because it doesn't, it's not limited to just those targeted industries. All employers right. with OSHA on site will get heat added to the inspection. Here's the trigger, at an 80 degree heat index. Yes. 80? 80's a, almost a summer day anywhere in the United States, would you agree? I agree, well, especially in Florida because the heat index that OSHA uses is a combination of air temperature and humidity. Uh, hello, Florida, looking right at you. Humidity. Exactly. Not, not so much here in Phoenix, but they've got us on the air temperature side. Exactly. No matter how you get there, getting to 80 is easy. So that that is what I mean by for at least, certainly in the state of Florida, when we're talking to folks about what to expect, we're, we're advising clients to really begin to anticipate that all OSHA inspections will involve heat. I think that's fair, and I think that employers need to think about if I'm asked about a heat illness plan or what we are doing to address the hazard of heat illness, do I have documents ready? Do I have a plan ready? Have I trained employees? Are my supervisors talking about heat illness at the morning safety meeting? And, and if you can't answer that, you have, a, you have a problem that can be addressed. It's not an unsolvable problem. Right? No, it's not. You touched upon something because I was about to ask you, well, what will these inspections involve? <laughs> and you already gave me the list. Let's drill down. The heat injury and illness program. Yes. OSHA is suggesting, but not requiring because, again, folks, an NEP is not yet a rule. It is just their enforcement priority. But the checklist of things they will be asking employers to provide includes a written heat injury and illness program. What is that? So that will be much like um, if you were in California, you'd call it your injury and illness prevention plan. But any other state, it's going to, going to be your safety program, your safety plan. And, and there has to be structure. And that plan will address communications. How are you communicating about heat illness? How are you training about heat illness? Uh, do you have a particular training module uh, for employees? What are the responsibilities in addressing heat illness? So what are your supervisors doing for heat illness? Are you providing water in the workplace? Are you providing shade in the workplace? Are you providing for acclimatization, rest periods, all of that? So, so there are many elements. And if, if these words sound unfamiliar to, to you as, a, as an employer in the United States, 
it's time to take that unfamiliarity and leverage it towards safety compliance. Do you agree? I, I do. And, and so you have, in Cal OSHA, do you have, say, you have a requirement to have a written injury and illness program? Yes. Right? Are you required to also have a heat injury and illness program? Absolutely. Okay. <laughs> and so now, even though I guess we, are, we, we should make sure we're 100% clear about this, folks, an NEP, National Emphasis Program, is not a rule. It's been Correct. called that by some folks. It's not a rule. OSHA can't cite you for not following it. But what OSHA has said is they will use that checklist of items to determine whether or not you are following the requirements of the general duty clause, going back to that whole idea of a recognized hazard and what are the feasible means of abatement. Their argument would be simply this. One feasible means of abatement is to actually have a written policy with these elements. Absolutely. Where does an employer get such a thing? Well, there are resources online. Uh, I like Washington State, Oregon, and California. They post model plans on mm -hmm. their websites. And for many employers, you can take elements of those plans and you can create your plan. Uh, for example, uh, some of the suggestions to be incorporated into a plan may not work for some businesses. And, and one example we talked about earlier, Philip, was that there's a suggestion that you should adjust employee schedules to deal with the heat, i.e. come in early or do work during darkness. Well, let's say for agriculture workers, you can't, you can't pick strawberries in the dark, doesn't quite work. Or for a garage, an open door garage, it, you can't necessarily do work you know, at noon with, with noisy equipment, the neighbors don't like that. So changing the time of the work may not be feasible for many employers. So you almost have a buffet of choices for addressing heat illness and you need to uh, take those items and processes and techniques and, and do what works for your business. So what you're saying is templates are just that. That's where you get started. Right. It's That's not where the you get started. It's not the end product. You need to still, no matter where the template comes from, you always need to take a job site employer specific look at what's in the program. Yes, and and this comes back to and and you and I've talked about this before. It is absolutely awesome to have a binder on the shelf with the program, and you can pull it out and show the inspector. That's just step one. Step two is going to be implementation. Right, you have to implement and ask yourself this, and, and you've seen this in interviews, would your employees be able to answer questions like, where do you get your cool water on a hot day? Do you have access to shade? Do you know what acclimatization is? Are you acclimatized after days away from work? Uh, who do you report to if you have symptoms? Is there a buddy system at work? If you're out working in a field, do you have a buddy to report how you feel to? You know, those questions you just asked were fantastic because here's where I'm going to expect they're going to come up. Here's, what I, here's the scenario that I think we should really begin to anticipate. Let's say OSHA comes on site to a construction site, bridge construction site, and they're looking at fall protection up on the, uh, the elevated parts of the bridge. And that's why they're there to inspect because someone called in a complaint saying no fall yes. protection, right? I don't think that the compliance officer is going to say in the opening conference, hey, I'm also going to add heat. <laughs> I just don't. I don't think they're going to. I think what will happen is they will interview employees, the non-management employees in those private interviews, and the questions you just asked, that's whenever the questions will begin to come up. You are right. 
And I think that one of the things I want to emphasize here is that's why it's critical that whenever OSHA is doing an inspection, that employers really must consider not just making sure that their management witnesses are prepared and anticipate what OSHA might ask, but you also need to work with those employees, the non-management folks. That's something that I think is uh, something that a lot of employers might not consider because the rule is, and we understand the rule, that OSHA still has a right to interview non-management folks in private. But there's yes. nothing said, nothing that says an employer can't get that employee ready. Absolutely. And, and Philip, with that, it, you have to make sure that employees understand the lingo. And understanding the lingo around heat illness symptoms and acclimatization and training and, and the communication. It, employees need to be able to say, this is who I'm going to tell that I feel nauseated, sick, I'm feeling heat illness. And the flip side, you talked about supervisors being interviewed. The questions for the supervisors might include, uh, what are you gonna do when the traffic control person says they're feeling sick and they need to cool off? What are your steps? So the superintendent, the supervisor, being able to articulate effectively that they know their action plan around heat illness. What do you think of that? I, you know, exactly. Preparation is key. We talk about that all the time when it comes to inspections. I tell you what, we've only got a couple of minutes left here, but I'm going to give you, uh, I'm going to let you go first on your closing comments, and then I'll close this out with mine. Thanks. Uh, my closing comments, I, I think this is a time, we're, we're recording this in May, right? The, the temperatures are going up, and it is time now. Training, having your program, uh, doing reminders, making sure that your morning safety briefings include heat illness, uh, making sure that your walk-arounds include inspecting the water. Uh, there's so much that you can add to checklist, and I think this is the time of year. This is critical. And, and really, every year, April or May, should be a time of renewed interest for most locations. Florida's probably all year long. <laughs> but, <laughs> but for most places in the United States, April and May are a time to reinvigorate your heat illness programs, and you must be ready. Uh, we talked this morning, uh, heat illness is a killer. Let, let's not um, forget about that. The reason that heat illness was addressed in California was because uh, many years ago, a young woman died in the fields um, picking uh, vegetables. And California really uh, took that and went towards a hazard minimization and addressing heat illness. So let's not forget that heat illness is a killer. And back to you, Philip. Thank you, Karen. I've got just a brief comment here that that will, I think, hopefully resonate with the folks that have listened to Dirty Steel Toe Boots podcast. And uh, you like the name, by the way, Dirty Steel Toe oh, Boots? absolutely. Okay. Well, I actually do have Dirty Steel Toe Boots, and I know, I know you, you do, do too. That's yes, why you're on I the do. program. So what we have, uh, listeners and folks that follow me on LinkedIn know that I talk about four things that employers should have in place that'll do two things. Uh, and those two things, we'll begin with those. Number one is it saves lives. It, it help, helps people stay safety, safe and healthy in the workplace. Number two, it keeps OSHA away and either avoids yes. or minimizes citations. And there's a double win. And those four things apply to heat as well. And whether OSHA issues a rule, uh, at some point, which we anticipate they will, 
and even the National Emphasis Program right now, those four things have a policy, have that written program, have your procedures put yes. in place, number one. Number two, do the training. Make sure that you've communicated effectively with employees, supervisors, and non-supervisors alike about what's in the program. Number three, make sure that you're following the rules. Make sure that they're actually <laughs> yes. doing something to make sure that folks are following the program. And then number four, if they don't follow the program, do something about it. You can have the best heat, yes. illness, and injury program on the planet, and if you don't enforce it, then it's meaningless. Now, what's I the agree. secret there is those four things. It's the worst named defense in all the law, the unavoidable employee misconduct defense. I can barely get it out. What it really means is the employer did all it could do. And even if tragedy strikes, if an employer has done those four things, uh, then uh, I like then the way you shape. word that and pull that together. You like that? It, yeah. I tell you, I think that is, that, that's one of my things that my listeners have heard do before is that this worst named defense in all the law. But what it really does is those four things, folks, that helps save lives and help keep the government away. And I can't wait to see you in Tampa in December for our own seminar, Workplace Safety. And I hope that you as a host will um, have some spectacular aspects to the Tampa event. I'm putting you on the spot in our podcast, but you better deliver, Philip. Oh, total shameless plug here, but it's our program, <laughs> December 7th, 8th, and 9th in Tampa. We also call it Champa Bay, by the way. Uh, <sighs> hey, go Lightning and Bucks and Rays. So we are, uh, we are putting together our Workplace Safety Symposium for Ogletree. It's awesome to be broadcasting from Workplace Strategies today. I and mean, when we have around 600 folks, we expect to have around 200 people in Tampa in December. Uh, the first thing we're going to do on December 7th is celebrate my birthday. Uh, and uh, once that's over, then we are going to go about having a really world-class, fantastic program for folks that are in charge of safety and in the legal department that have safety responsibilities. So folks, uh, more information on that from the firm, but look to join us December 7th, 8th, and 9th in Tampa. And thanks for joining me on Dirty Steel Toe Boots. Thank you, Philip. Thank you for joining us on the Ogletree Deacons podcast. You can subscribe to our podcasts on Apple Podcasts or through your favorite podcast service. Please consider rating and reviewing so that we may continue to provide the content that covers your needs. And remember, the information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be construed as legal advice.